And we have been preaching here through the Gospel of Luke, and we come today to the end of Luke chapter 3, which is thrilling stuff. We have Jesus' baptism, and then we have Jesus' genealogy, with the big old list of names. And so kids, if you're here, if you grab one of the kids' clipboards back there, it's, you know, if you don't know, uh, it, you know, you're an adult, you're not grabbing the clipboard. Uh, it, we have some activity boards for kids during the week. I just heard one on the drop, so. Uh, but there's often a coloring sheet on there and some activities. This week there is a word search, and I made this word search this week, and it's huge. It has every name from Jesus' genealogy in it. I tried doing this myself, and it took me 90 minutes to do. So I don't expect you to get it done, but kids, I'll tell you what, if you can complete this during the week and bring it back to me next week, then I will give you a prize. Okay? I don't know what it is. You can tell me what you want the prize to be, and I will consider it. Uh, but, but good luck. Some of the names, so there's one guy named Er, E-R, and you can find his name in this like a hundred times. He's in there a So I don't even know which one it's, it's supposed to be. But 78 names, some of them are in there multiple times. That means you've got to find it multiple times. There's three Josephs in the genealogy. You've got to find three Josephs in the word search. So adults, I think we have some extras at the, at the table if you are, are interested in, in doing word finding. Uh, but we find ourselves today in Luke 3. Last week, we saw Luke. We spent all this time in the, the infancy, even pre-infancy, of Jesus and John the Baptist. We saw Jesus when he was 12 years old, and then last week we saw Luke fast forward now to an adult John the Baptist as he stepped into that role as forerunner for Jesus' ministry. He was the one who would prepare the way. He was the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, as Isaiah had prophesied. And John came from the wilderness to prepare Israel for the great work of God that Jesus would begin. And as we saw last week, that work began with repentance, with people turning from their sinful ways and turning their hearts toward the Lord. Letting God and His Word, God's priorities, God's commandments filter into their entire beings so that tax collectors would become honest and soldiers would become kind and all people would become generous and helpful. And as we saw last week, this was not to earn salvation. This was not to make God love them. It was to prepare their hearts. It was to expose their own sinfulness, to get them to recognize that they needed saving. Because John had said, he who is mightier than I is coming. And he was talking about Jesus, of course, and Jesus would bring that great work of salvation. John framed that, we saw last week, like in terms of wrath and judgment. Jesus coming with fire, burning the chaff, that sort of stuff. And Jesus comes, not in contradiction to those things, but he comes not to do that, just yet. This becomes especially clear in John's Gospel. John writes in John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And in John 12.47, Jesus himself said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And this was a surprising turn, perhaps, for some. But Jesus' first public actions as an adult that we'll see in Luke will confirm and demonstrate this. Because Jesus shows up on the scene as John is baptizing people, and Jesus does something quite surprising in that he gets baptized himself. Now, when we left off in chapter 3, verse 20 last week, we saw 
that John had been thrown into prison because he had been confronting King Herod about his sins. So Herod locked him up. Uh, but Luke is like kind of layering his narratives here. And so he's going to come back here and show Jesus getting baptized. Jesus was part of the people getting baptized by John. So this happens before John is in prison. But Luke flashes back now to that point. So we'll look at this passage here. Uh, and four things you'll see happen in it. One, Jesus gets baptized. Second, Jesus prays. Third, the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus. And fourth, God speaks over the situation. And so our text, as I said, this morning contains the baptism and the genealogy. We're going to save the genealogy for later. Right now we're just going to read verses 21 and 22 in Luke 3. So follow along as I read these. Where it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. So again, we have here a remarkable thing. Jesus getting baptized with what was called a baptism of repentance. Which causes us to ask the question, what did Jesus ever need to repent for? Right, we saw last week that John's baptism was a reminder to people that they were sinners, that they needed saving. They needed to come to grips with the fact that they were sinners, just like we need to come to grips with that fact if we are to be saved. So one by one, the people are getting into the water, washing away their sins, as it were, coming back to God. But then Jesus shows up, and other gospel writers actually show John like trying to stop him. Like, I don't know if this is right for you to come and do this. Luke doesn't include that. He just has like the simple fact that Jesus comes and he gets baptized. And Luke doesn't even describe the baptism. He just says that it had happened. And here's what happened when it did. And so he describes a scenario. But it causes us to ask that question, why? Because Luke had said back in verse 3 that this was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So a baptism of repentance. Let's just check the dictionary for this one. Repentance, defined, Webster's Dictionary, the action or process of repenting, especially for misdeeds or moral shortcomings. And then to repent is to turn from sin and to dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life. And we know that these categories don't really work for Jesus. We see him, you know, that, that's kind of the whole point of Jesus, right? He's the perfect son of God, sinless one, the spotless lamb, all of that. So what is with Jesus getting this baptism of repentance? In Matthew's gospel, he actually gives more of an explanation. You can look at that some other time. But in Luke's gospel, there's no explanation given for why Jesus is doing this. But we can look at what's happening and we can think about it. So look, first of all, at who is getting into the water. If we look back at verses 10 through 14, we saw three people called out in there. One, tax collectors, the worst traitors in Jewish society. Second, soldiers, who are known as violent and immoral men. And then third, it says that the crowds were coming. The crowd, this is a word that typically meant like the low-status people, the poor, the unimportant, like the unwashed masses, as it were. And so it's significant here that Jesus is coming and he's climbing into the same water as all of these people. The same water as tax collectors, the same water as soldiers, the same water as those unwashed masses. And this is risky stuff in a way. 
I don't know if you saw this in the news, but a little over a week ago, after all the snow and ice started melting here in Salem, the city of Salem, our city, issued a warning that about 50,000 gallons of raw sewage had drained into our rivers and creeks. So, you know, that's always uplifting, uplifting news there. Uh, it, I don't know how snow makes that happen, but I guess it does. Thankfully, it's not a time of year that a lot of people are going and hopping into the rivers and creeks. So it is nice today, so we hold off on that. Uh, but nevertheless, the city posted signs warning people about high levels of bacteria in the water. Potentially, in case you're thinking about getting in. Now, again, if you don't get in, usually it's good to get into water. Every once in a while, it's not 50,000 gallons of sewage. Typically, going into the water gets you clean. There are times that it can have the opposite effect. Now, of course, in our own country, in certain parts of America, at certain times, it has been thought that going into the same water as certain other people that are deemed undesirable can have dangerous effects, too. Right? Even after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, certain elements of American society remained segregated, and in some parts of America, that especially included swimming pools. Swimming pools were commonplace of segregation. Blacks were kept out of many pools that white people swam in for a couple of reasons. One, it was thought that they needed to protect white women from what they saw as predatory and violent black men. Another, that was probably more common, was that it was thought that African Americans were more likely to transmit infectious diseases. Now, of course, both of these are not true, right? These are ridiculous and blatantly and self-evidently false, but these beliefs persisted, and it kept people of different colors from getting into the same water as other people who didn't want their stuff to rub off on you. And it was into this context that you might know this story, right? A simple segment of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in 1969 made such a powerful statement. There was an episode in which Mr. Rogers was out on his porch on a hot summer day, cooling his feet in a plastic wading pool when he was approached by Officer Clemens, who was a black man. And Mr. Rogers invited him to join him and cool off his feet in the pool, and Clemens said, no, I shouldn't do that. I don't have a towel with me. And Rogers says, it's fine. You can use my towel. And so the officer says, okay, and he took off his shoes and he put them into the same pool as Mr. Rogers and he filled it with water and the camera got in there good and tight so you could see both of their feet in the same pool together. And then Officer Clemens says, well, that's, that was nice, I need to get back on my job. And so he took his feet out, he dries them off with Mr. Rogers' towel, and then he handed the towel back to Mr. Rogers, who then used that same towel to dry his own feet. And as a simple segment of television, and like most of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, if you ever watched it, you, know, you always watched it because it was what was on. You never sought it out, but it was there when you were a kid. It was like, but this segment was like a lot of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It was ordinary, it was mundane, it was even a little bit boring, but in all that, it made a powerful statement. Without saying those words, Mr. Rogers and Officer Clemens were demonstrating that they were made out of the same stuff as each other. There's no difference between them. They may be different colors. They might not, not even at that time been able to swim together in certain pools in America, but they didn't care. They said they were both human, and so they were going to get into the same water. And now some might have chosen to look down on Mr. Rogers for this. They might have thought that his actions were dangerous or foolish or disgusting, and he was saying, I don't care. That's my friend. I'm with him. 
And we get into the same water. And now Jesus' baptism has much of the same effect. By getting into the same water as tax collectors and soldiers and the grubby masses of the world, Jesus was saying, I don't care. These are my friends. I am with them. It is an act of solidarity. It is an act of defiance. It is an act of compassion. John had said, there's someone coming after me, and essentially said, look out for this guy, because he might come and get you if you are not right. And Jesus said, no, not this time. Again, without any words, but through his actions, this is Jesus saying, I haven't come to judge the world, but to save it. And these are the people that I'm coming to save, and I'm getting in to their mess with them. And people could say, Jesus, don't you know who you're getting into the water with? And he would say, yes, I'm getting into the water with these, my brothers and sisters, I am here for them. And so Jesus gets into that water, Jesus gets baptized, and then he starts praying. We don't know what he was praying. It'd be super interesting to know. Only Luke notes that he prayed after his baptism, but it says that Jesus is praying, and as he's praying, the heavens open up, and the Holy Spirit descends down onto Jesus like a dove. We don't even know exactly what that means. We don't know if it means it is actually in the form of a dove, but it's, or if it just moved like a dove in some way. But whatever it was, it was something tangible, and either by how it looked or how it moved, it reminded people of a dove. This was the form that the Holy Spirit chose to take. And this was an odd choice, because to this point, there's a lot of Bible behind this, and never before this had a dove been used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, or a symbol of God, really, at all. In fact, the dove was not a very prominent biblical symbol at all before this. There was one significant instance when another man had himself passed through the water. You might remember, of course, Noah and the story of the great flood. You know the story, right? A great flood comes, and the judgment of God in this, all of humanity is destroyed, but God in his grace saves Noah and his family and a large ark with many animals in it. And when the flood was over and no one was wondering whether it was safe to come out and leave the boat, it took weeks and weeks of waiting, and then it was a dove that told them it's okay. Genesis 8, 11, and 12, that the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. So he waited another seven days, and sent forth the dove, but she did not return to him anymore. So he knew it was time to go out. So there it is, right? It's the dove who signals that God's judgment is over. That the warfare between God and his people has ended. That it is safe to come out. Noah has passed through the waters. He's been forgiven of his sins, as it were. And the dove says, it's okay now. And I think that the Holy Spirit taking on the form of a dove at Jesus' baptism is probably some connection to this. Come, pass through the waters, turn from your sins, be washed clean, turn your hearts to God, and now in Christ you see it's okay. It's safe to come out. God has come not to destroy you, but to save you. It's grace upon grace. Look at the dove that comes on Jesus. This is, I think, what Jesus' baptism is communicating. That he's identifying the sinful people. That he's proclaiming an offer of salvation and mercy and friendship, an offer of grace. The people stepped into the waters and they repented of their sins and it provided a picture of their sins being washed away, carried off into the waters 
But then Jesus steps into that same water, and he didn't have any sins to wash away at all. But it's like stepping into that sewage water that you're not supposed to step into because you'll get dirty. And this is what's happening. Jesus is symbolically taking their sins upon him. You know, if you're filthy and you get done with a bath, like you're all clean now, but the bath water is gross. Nobody wants to get in there after you. Even when we do baptisms, you know, like when we did our baptism back in November, we had a service, like we baptized six people. Like if you're number six, you already feel a little bit weird. Because so many people have been dumped in this bathtub and now you're getting into and it's just not normal. But if you take a bath and you get all dirty, nobody wants to get in, right? The water is disgusting. But Jesus says, I'll get in. He takes a bath that will get him dirty. Remember when we baptized Isaac last summer? Went to the, the slough and went to Brown. Water was a little stagnant. You got up there, there's a lot of algae in that water. It's like, we might get dirtier than anything here, but that's okay. But Jesus says, I'll get into that dirty water. I'll get in with your dirt. I will get in with your, I'll get in with mine. This is love. So what Paul Miller says, he said, Love doesn't erase worries. Love often doesn't erase worries, it just shifts them to a different set of shoulders choose to love one, you don't take away their worries, you take their burdens upon yourself and carry them for them. This is what Jesus is doing, shifting our burdens, our cares, our worries, our sins to his shoulders. And this is all so surprising, but it's like God has to step in himself and reassure people that this is all okay. Is Jesus supposed to be doing this baptism of repentance? Is he supposed to be associating with these people? Does he know what he's doing? And God steps in and says, yes, he does. He's doing exactly what I want him to be doing. God speaks from heaven. You can see there in verse 22, the voice comes from heaven and God says two things. Number one, you are my beloved son. He speaks directly to Jesus and he says, with you, I am well pleased. And probably these are both like quotations from the Old Testament which is fine because God like wrote that. So he's not plagiarizing, but he can just say it. Uh, but he says here, you are my son. What does this do? This echoes Psalm 2, which we read this morning. Psalm 2, which is a royal psalm in which the Son of God is enthroned as king above all earthly kings. And Psalm 2, 7 says, you are my son. This is a reference to Jesus' kingship. And at Jesus' baptism, God says it again. You are my son. He's saying, this is the God. This is the king. This is the one who will rule over all the earth. Nobody can stand against him in his power. You are to bow down to him in his authority. This is that God. But is that God supposed to be getting into the same water with sinners? And God says, yes, I am pleased with what he's doing. With you, I am well pleased. And that idea of being well pleased echoes Isaiah 42. And when Isaiah prophesied of a servant of God who would come, Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Same type of word, one with whom I am well pleased. And then Isaiah says, I put my spirit upon him. God says, I'm doing, he is doing just what I want him to do. And through these references, God is connecting two prophetic themes from the Old Testament. That the Messiah would be a great king to rule over all the world and bring justice, and that he would be a humble servant who would suffer for and in place of his people. And this is it, says God. 
This one, he is the servant king. He is the Messiah. Yes, repent of your sins to prepare your heart for him because he is a great king who demands your allegiance. But also take heart because he is a humble servant who lowers himself down to your level. And this brings us to the second section of today's text, the genealogy, favorite parts of scripture. So the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, each give genealogies for Jesus. And the weird thing is that they're very different. And you say, okay, that's, that's normal, right? Everyone has two genealogies. You have a mother and a father. And so if you trace one or the other, wouldn't they be very different? And you say, yeah, maybe that's the case here, except that both Matthew and Luke claim to be tracing Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. So what do we do with this? That this genealogy is so different than Matthew's. Right? Matthew is using his genealogy to connect Jesus to Abraham and David. He actually starts with Abraham and then works his way down towards Jesus. And Matthew's trying to show that he is the true king of Israel. Luke is using his genealogy to connect Jesus all the way back to Adam. And he works backwards from Jesus up to Adam to show that Jesus is the true son of man in that sense. Not just son of God, but son of man. So Luke's genealogy goes back further, all the way to Adam. And from Abraham to David, the two genealogies are identical. But from David to Jesus, they're almost completely different. And you say, that's weird. Is this a problem with the Bible? And here's another instance where I'll say, let me say this often. The early church is much closer to these things than we are. They were connected still to Jesus' earthly family. They received these Gospels as complementary rather than contradictory, and they didn't see a problem with the genealogies. But you might hear people say from time to time, look, Matthew and Luke have different genealogies. Here's evidence of a contradiction in the Bible. I don't think so. There are a few different explanations. We don't know which one it is, but there's always plausible explanations. I can't tell you which one is correct, but I'll give you three quick options here if you are curious about these. It might be, actually, that one of the genealogies, in this case probably Luke's, is actually tracing Jesus' ancestry through Mary rather than through Joseph. Even though it says that we'll see that Jesus was the son of Joseph, Luke does slot in that, as was supposed, like he was not really the son of Joseph, but, you know, because he you know that he wasn't biologically the son of Joseph. But it could be that Mary had no brothers, and so Joseph, as her father's son-in-law, was made his legal son. So he could slot it in there in that place, but it's really Mary that ties Jesus to this. So that's one option. It may also be that Matthew is tracing David's legal line to show who had the right to be king, while Luke is tracing the biological line. This is why Matthew goes from David to Solomon, whereas Luke goes from David to Nathan, who's like a son of David that nobody even knows anything about. So maybe Jesus was the rightful king, but not directly descended from Solomon. Third, Joseph may have had two dads. Like that zany 80s sitcom with Paul Reiser, My Two Dads. You say, how is this possible? How could Joseph have two dads? I don't know. Well, I grew up with like three grandmas. Right? I have three grandmas because of my mom's mom, my dad's mom, and my grandpa's wife. Right? He and his first wife had split up, and so like, I had two grandmas. I wasn't technically related to one. There had been divorce and remarriage before I was even born. And now similarly, but even more formally, the Old Testament described a practice known as leveret marriage, in which a woman who was widowed would be taken as a wife by her late husband's brother. 
and that brother would then raise up sons for his deceased brother. And in those instances, the children could rightly be called the sons of either man. Like his biological dad, or what was actually his uncle biologically, but it's his, it's his dad in a different sense. So that could really change things. If there's one or two or three instances of that in Joseph's line, then it would really uh, alter some of those lines. So those are some options. That's all I'll say about that. And now we're going to read this text. And I've been committed that as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke, that I'm going to read every word of the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to read every word of this genealogy. Now kids, as I said, you've got your word search, you've got some questions to work through about the genealogy. So think about those as you read. But here's a challenge for you kids. Okay, this genealogy is going to start with Jesus. And it's going to, that's the first name in it. And the last name is actually God. Okay, it's going to start with Jesus. It's going to end with God. What I want you to do, okay, if you are a kid here, if you're an adult, you can try to. But I want you to count how many names are in this genealogy as I read it. All right? And can you do that? So you'll see if you come up with the same number that I do. So again, Jesus will be the first name, Joseph will be the second, and God will be the last. So you count them as I read through. And this is it. Yeah, we'll read it out. Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mephath, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maab, the son of Matthias, the son of Semein, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa. The son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Milky, the son of Abi, the son of Kosan, the son of El Madan, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maliah, the son of Menah, the son of Metapha, the son of Nathan, the son of David the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Abner, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Seru, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, son of Arpaxid, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. We made it. All right, kids, how many, how many names? I lost count around 50. Okay, so there's more than 50. Anybody? <laughs> 78. Wait, was that Frank? Okay, well, all right. That's what I had too. So I think Frank won. So, kids, you can go. That's Frank, how he got there. There's a lot going on in this, this passage, right? Tons of names. 78, you might say, if you're Frank. All men's names. It says son every time. We know from other parts of the Bible that there are some gaps in here. Some of these might be grandsons, great grandsons. And it goes all the way back to Adam, the very first man. It's incredible. 
Wouldn't you like to be able to do this if you're interested at all in genealogy? You can draw your genealogy all the way back to the very beginning of time and of humanity. But it's interesting, Matthew makes such a big deal about Jesus being part of King David's line. And Luke shows this, like David's in there. And someone like Abraham, who Matthew makes a big deal of. Abraham is in this one too. So are some other big names. But Luke just like zooms right past them. David doesn't get any more attention in this genealogy than uh, Ur in verse 28. And Abraham gets the same amount of space as the great luminary uh, army in verse 33 and the great biblical figures. Because Luke, again, is getting to a point. And the point is Adam, the ancestor of us all, the first man. And now this makes our passage today begin and end with Jesus as the Son of God. First, God said it, right? You are my beloved Son. So he saw from God's mouth that Jesus is the Son of God. And then Luke proved it by his genealogy. And the first one was really a special thing, that Jesus was the Son of God. Right? He was the son of Psalm 2. He was the royal king. He was the promised Messiah and fulfillment of prophecy. And here at the end of the genealogy, he's called the son of God again, but in a way that literally everyone in the world could claim for themselves. Right? I can't tell you my own genealogy in my head past about three or four generations, but if I could flawlessly fill out the whole thing, it would end the same as Jesus's. At some point, we'll get back to that son of Adam, so you could put in there, son of God. Because Adam was made in the image of God, and so was every human that came after him. And so my genealogy would be that way, your genealogy would be the same. This means that each of us, you and I, are made in the image of God. And so the first instance where Jesus is called the son of God is very special. God was saying, yes, he's really my son. And he's saying it's okay for him to like mix it up with the rabble, as it were, because also he's the son of God in the sense that he's one of them too. He's made of the same stuff. He's really stepping into our story. He's related to all of us. We're all related to him. And just as Adam acted as representative of all of humanity, Jesus is going to do the same. We'll actually look at this more in two weeks when they're back in Luke. We're going to take a break. We'll do a different uh, sermon next week. But in two weeks, we'll be back in Luke. We'll look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We'll see more of his connections to Adam and how he's become the second Adam. But think some about what Paul says. Let me read a little bit from Romans 5. Paul says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. There's a 
ton there in that passage, but we see that Jesus is stepping into this role as like the second Adam. The first Adam screwed things up. He acted in a representative sense for all of humanity, and he made it hopeless for us to fix our sin problem under our own strength. But Jesus, through his death, for our sins and his resurrection and his ascension will act as our representative once again and he will fix the problem that Adam brought about and he can fix the problem because he's really human and that's the point of this whole genealogy he's not afraid to become like us he's not afraid to step into our line he's not afraid to take on our stuff he wants us to bring him all of that stuff that's why John the Baptist was trying to get people to surface all of that stuff, all of their sins, all their problems, to bring it out in the open so that Jesus can deal with it. And he would deal with it by identifying with his sinful brothers and sisters, by undergoing a baptism of repentance that wasn't even his to do. Because Jesus would undergo a lot of things that were not rightfully his to do, because that's what love is. It's not erasing someone's problem, it's taking them and putting them on your own shoulders. And it's knowing and seeing this love of Jesus that will enable us to come to him in the midst of all our junk, all our mess, all our sin, and to find forgiveness in him. Paul Miller said that Jesus essentially tells us, relax, you are much worse than you think you are. And so we turn to Jesus in our sin, and it's quite freeing to do it. You take off your mask, and you relax, and you gather together with others who are doing the same thing. And that's the church. That's why we're here. And then we turn around, and we care for other people, and we love them because we know that we are not morally superior to them. We can help. We can listen. We can love because we have seen the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you yourself have been baptized, you can look at this passage and look back at your own baptism and see Jesus sitting in the waters of baptism right next to you, doing it right along with you. He came and he got baptized with us. And then on the night that he was betrayed, he invited us to come to his table forever, to come and to eat with him, to share a meal with him week after week after week, day after day, year after year. Remember in Jesus' day, Self-righteous people came, and they said, Jesus, you're eating with sinners. And they scoffed at him. What are you doing? Don't you know the people that you are eating with? Every week in the church, continues this day. Jesus keeps inviting us to his table to eat with him. He takes our stuff on him. He invites us to his table. Christians have not always had the best reputation, you know? You might recall the famous quote attributed to Gandhi, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And as Christians, we say, yeah, don't we know it? But yeah. But he's not embarrassed to be hanging out with us in spite of that. He invites us over anyway. He's already gotten into our dirty water after us. So what's a meal together? He loves us. He knows us. He's here with us. So let's join him in this meal. I'd like Craig up to lead us now in this.